Who's the big Italian just off the boat? It's Justo's brother, Gaetano, over from the boot. He's there? Not sure yet. You tell me if they were taking my boy out to the woodshed. Because in my book, they say safe, they mean sound, unmolested. Nobody interferes with the boy. He's entirely in my keeping. Hello and welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I am the <laughs> Brian. Stop making me laugh. I'm Lisa Zambetti, and I'm a casting director in Los Angeles. I have cast victims and villains and psychopaths and survivors and cops and nurses and everything in between. And with and I love to talk about casting and the shows that you should be watching. And I'd like to help you curate those a bit and point you in the direction of something you should be binging. And with me today are my smart ass sexy beast co-hosts. Please say hello. Oh, hello. It's Brian here. And uh, coming in from uh, down under, Dean Laffin out of Melbourne. So today we're going to be talking about season four of Fargo. And I needed a little extra muscle on this one. I needed to reach out to a friend of my other podcast, Real Crime Profile, a good friend of our dear Jim Clementi's. And this person has come on Real Crime Profile to tell us some truths and set our minds straight. And I asked him to come to join us today. And he is... Douglas Flo, a professor of history at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Flo is here, and I'm so glad that he's made time out of his busy schedule to come and help us deconstruct Fargo season four. And Dr. Flo, what's what's the book that, that I just want to give a shout out to the book and actually the department that you teach in and what your specialty is? Just tell the nice listeners about yourself. Yes, my book is called Uncontrollable Blackness, African-American Men and Criminality in New York City. And as the name implies, it's about black men and crime and justice, criminalization of African-American men, especially through the prism of race in New York City in the early 20th century. And so I teach history of classes relating to urban studies, race and drugs, masculinity, politics of black crime and protest at Washington University in St. Louis. You're amazing. That is amazing. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted your perspective to come on the show, because Fargo season four, for me, is a standalone season. I haven't seen any of the previous seasons. I don't know what happens in them, but I was, I've was i been completely captivated by this season because it's not just your traditional crime drama. It really just has a lot to say about the different factions of crime. And there are plenty of really powerful TV shows and movies about the African-American experience in gangs. I mean, there's Boys in the Hood and Dead Presidents. There's just a ton that deal with gangs in the post-crack era, The Wire. But in Fargo season four, it's really taking a, a much different historical look at Black Mafia and that it's in this storytelling, it's it's pre-pharmaceutical. I mean, it's it's looking at other industries that the crime family is involved in. And and they're they have a very entrepreneurial spirit, just trying to get ahead, just trying to get somewhere 
in America to get their American dream. And so I just wanted to bring you on, Dr. Flo, to kind of tell us some truths and lay down some perspectives on how accurate or not accurate or, or how you how you interpret the dynamics within that Black Mafia family. So I know that you've watched up to, to episode... Episode five. Episode five. So we can at least get into all of the the characters. But anything off the jump that kind of occurred to you as you were watching this season? Yeah, there are a number of things that immediately come to me. And there's some stuff about the racial dynamic between the African-American characters or the African-American crime organization. And then also the Italian organization. And some maybe we'll get to talk a bit more about that. But the first thing that I think is really important of thinking about organized crime in African-American communities in the, as you call it, the pre-pharmaceutical era, before the crack era, like in the middle of the 20th century, is that there's, there's definitely a precedent for this sort of organized crime syndicate to exist in a Black community. And I think, especially with Chris Rock's character, Lloyd Cannon, what they've done is they've made it clear that a lot of African-Americans who are working in this way with, with these sorts of organizations were looking to eventually set up legitimate businesses and to secure some measure of, I feel like they leave the community out to some extent, but ultimately he seems to be trying to secure some measure of positive racial destiny for his broader community. And I think that is really clear from this one scene where he goes to a bank and he's attempting to set up a credit card uh, system, right? And this mm-hmm. is before America is flooded with credit cards. Uh, he has this idea and he brings it to the bank and obviously doesn't go very well it kind of symbolizes how criminal organizations or organizations that were working in underground economies very often had a part to play in African-American communities that were very often bereft of investments that were redlined out of banking investments that didn't have the capital to start banks or to start other types of economic investments in those communities that an organization like Lloyd Cannon's organization very often would step in to provide that sort of service and provide that sort of economic capital for the community. So yeah, I mean, I I think it is in a lot of ways a factual representation. And I think there's a lot of other aspects of organized crime and just crime in general and how it operates in economically deserted communities that this show is really kind of bringing up. Yeah, I'm just completely fascinated by all the relationships. And I feel like Unlike the other crime families, the Black crime family, I just am so much more invested in emotionally and probably because what you were just describing. I'm really rooting for them in a way that I'm not. And I'm Italian. <laughs> you think I'd be rooting for the Italians. But there's a quote that it, later on in the season, there's a quote from Bertram Russell. Life is nothing but a competition to be criminal rather than the victim. People seem good when they're oppressed but they only wish to become oppressors in their turn. But the thing about uh, that Black people are sort of the exception to this rule, that that there's nothing that an exceptionally clever leader like Loy Cannon can do to advance his race from oppressed to the oppressor, even if he succeeds in the war against the Fadas. And as you say, the Loy's idea of creating a credit card to the white bankers, and, and there's just no way that anybody will ever listen to him. I don't know. It's just such, it's such a deeper, it's, I yeah. mean, that's why this show is just more to me than just another capo mafioso yeah. thing. It's just got such deeper roots to it. That's no, no pun yeah. intended. I mean, but mm-hmm. as I was thinking about it, I mean, like the one thing we know is loan sharking. That's a yeah. big one, 
right? It's, it's yeah. the, the principal one that we know of as an audience. And kind of going off what Lisa said, I mean, it seems to me that whether you're Italian or whether you're African-American, there's going to be a fair amount of victimization within your own community, right? The Italians did it in terms of their loan sharking, even like policymaking, even running numbers. It's not a huge crime, but I mean, it's a nickel dime here that, and the house is always going to win. I mean, and I'm curious, where was the shift from running numbers in New York, which like Bumpy Johnson did, which was a big moneymaker for black crime families or black criminals in New York in the 30s and 40s? When did it shift? When did it become like Frank Lucas and the heroin trade? When was that transition? When did that happen? Yeah, I mean, this is so. This is a really great history that I love talking about. You can go all the way back to the early 20th century, to the, to, to 1900, and see African Americans involved in the trade of illegal substances. Cocaine was not illegal in New York until I think around 1910 and 1914. We see the Harrison Narcotic Act that makes it nationally illegal, and every, every state has their own way of. of of interpreting that law, but it becomes, it really doesn't become illegal until 1914. And before that, it was illegal locally. So in New York, there were ordinances against cocaine, and you did have African Americans who were involved in the cocaine trade. I mean, I have a number of trial transcripts where you, you, you can see people who have been arrested for street sales in, in some of the same ways that we normally associate with the later half of the 20th century. So there are criminal syndicates, Jewish and Italian and Irish and definitely African-American criminal syndicates in the early 20th century already selling uh, cocaine and moving illegal uh, substances. And even during that time, and you mentioned Bumpy Johnson, and he was a heroin dealer. And we have Casper Holstein in the early 20th century, the 1920s, who was a numbers runner. And he was actually a rival of Madame St. Saint- Clair, Stephanie St. Clair, who was also running numbers in Harlem. They were, they were both big rivals. So you, you definitely have, as I think you're hinting at, these African-American criminal syndicates or underground organizations that are in a lot of ways providing some sort of services for their community, providing economic assistance, in some cases, investing in those communities, in some cases, giving charity out, and in other cases, also providing jobs for people in those communities. And maybe once in a while, someone hits the number and they they have some economic stimulus. But then on the flip side of that, which I think you're also hinting at, is there is a lot of violence caused by these underground communities. There are wars, right? I mean, Casper Holstein, uh, Bumpy Johnson, they were in very often in wars with Jewish and Italian crime families, like Dutch Schultz's uh, crime family in Manhattan. And so there's, there are wars, there's violence, there's death, there's destruction, there are problems that are coming from the usage of drugs like heroin. So it's a double-edged sword, right? We can talk about someone like Bumpy Johnson or Casper Holstein, or in this case, Lloyd Cannon's character in the show, as providing some sort of economic stimulus and an economic platform for for a community that otherwise has very little. But they're also at the same time upholding a system that does cause pain to the community. One of the things that I think is missing from this show is at least up until episode five, we don't really see how they make their money. We don't really understand 
what they're doing and how they're affecting their communities. And maybe this was just part of the storyline. Maybe the storyline is supposed to be kind of wrapped claustrophobically around these leaders of these of these two organizations, mm-hmm. but they seem to kind of float above the scenery. They don't seem to be attached to the place they live in. How do they make their money? How are they thought of in their communities? Where is their community? We don't really mm-hmm. get to see it. What's going on with the people whose lives they most assuredly are impacting, whether positively or negatively? Are they destroying lives? Very much of the dialogue, and it's interesting dialogue, and it's 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 good, but it takes place between the leaders of these organizations and the other men in the background are mostly just holding guns and, and kind of standing there a lot of the time. Right, um, so right. As a social historian, it feels like the show is too claustrophobically on the leaders and it's missing the broader community that is, as sure. I said, most assuredly being affected. Yeah, you don't really get to know much about the community, but you certainly do get to know some of the backstories of those henchmen as you go further through the season. And we're going to go get back into the season and into the characters and into the plot. But yeah, you're right. It's mostly about the heads of these families and the chaos that is resulting from the death of the Italian patriarch, right? The godfather. interesting, yeah. Right. So the godfather dies and it kind of sets this sort of tense peace that everybody has. Everybody's making money. Everybody's in business with each other. But with the death of the godfather, it sets a chaos and a power struggle between his sons. And then it sets into all different kinds of chaos. But at one point, the son of the godfather, Josto, he's trying to get the war between the families to stop. And he says, why America loves a crime story? Because America is a crime story. We root for the taker and not the victim. Although I totally disagree with that. But anyway, America loves a man who takes what he wants. And then he says, unless that man looks like you, meaning Mm -hmm. unless that man is a black man, white people use crime to get ahead. But when they see you, all they see is crime. I can take all the money and pussy I want and still run for president, (laughs) which is not so... Settle a dig. But I I think that's true from his point of view. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting part of the show that's exhibited in that line. That was actually one that I really kind of was struck by also. And it's something that I think and hope the people who made the show were pretty aware of, that there is this racial dynamic between African-Americans and Italians that in a lot of ways mirrors the dynamic between African-Americans and Irish immigrants in the early 20th century and African-Americans and um, other immigrants. But there's something special with Italians and African-Americans. And so I think that pairing Black and Italian organized crime was likely done with an understanding of that history. First of all, Italian criminologists were very important to early and mid 20th century criminological theory. And they often theorized in in very racialized ways, not only about what they consider to be lesser races, which could possibly be Africans or black and brown people, but also about Italians themselves. So most notably, there's uh, Cesare Lombroso, uh, a late 19th century criminologist, and he theorized that Italians from Southern Italy were so intermixed with Africans that they were what he called atavistic or born criminals. And this thinking had a lot to do with shaping the perspective that Americans had about Italians as they were arriving around the turn of the 20th century. Oh, yes. So what we see is that just as Italians are arriving in America, and many are coming from Southern Italy, Americans are having their thoughts about Italian immigrants confirmed by one of their own, Cesare Lombroso. 
very prominent um, criminologist. So yes, we do see, it's clear in, in the show, we do see the Italians face some pretty strong resistance to their presence. They, they faced uh, pretty strong nativism, definitely anti-Catholic sentiment. And this led to problems of police violence and discrimination, particularly in the early 20th century when they had not gone through a process of becoming white. This is very important because in a lot of ways, they were marginalized. In some cases, they were marginalized to, to some of the same neighborhoods that African-Americans inhabited. So you're talking and about Italians, Italians, Italians being marginalized. Definitely Italians were, were marginalized. And so in some cases, they were marginalized into the same communities that African-Americans inhabited. And this meant that there was sometimes intermarriage. There was interracial crime, meaning that they might work together interracial conflicts, and also at the same time, contests for space, uh, resources, jobs, and housing. And so in much of the early 20th century, uh, the progressive conversations about race, crime, national unity, and political cohesion, African-Americans and Italians were often compared and, and contrasted. But going back to the comment that was made by the character Justo Fada, this discrimination that Italian immigrants experienced never equaled what Blacks experience. Oh, God, no. Absolutely and, not. Yeah. And, and also at the same time, 19, by the time we get to the 1950s, we've had a couple of generations of African-Americans going through what I said before, a process of becoming white. There, there's, not, there's not the same type of virulent nativism towards Italians in the 1950s that we see around the 1890s and into around 1920. And so we're seeing, I think, in the show, the impact of this transition. There's a part, as you said, there's that part where he makes that comment to a group of African-American men who are in jail. And he's making it very clear that he's cognizant of this change, that African-Americans, all they're going to see when they look at you is crime. But he's understanding that, uh, that Italian immigrants have become a part of the American dream and are kind of um, criminality for, for them in some ways is connected to this kind of rebellious American spirit of someone trying to seize the American dream one way or, or the other. No lynchings. No more blackjacks at the polls. So they send me to Nuremberg. And this colonel tells me he's got a big job for me. Says, you're going to interview Hermann Goering. The Reichs Marshal himself says, days, weeks, however long it takes to get him to talk, says, I need you, Dr. Senator Esquire, to use your training, your skills, to build a people's case. Well, now, what is that if not the double victory? So I sit with the man for six weeks, eight hours a day, six days a week, and we get into it. The first two weeks, he just stares at me, murder in his eyes. I use my wiles, appeal to his ego, get him talking. Soon, he won't shut up, bragging about every little thing, and I type it down and write it up for the colonel word for word. I spent two weeks crafting my conclusion, my analysis of international law. Then, one Sunday morning, after services, I knock on the colonel's door, and I give him my report. You know what he does? He throws it in the trash. 
400 pages with footnotes. Throws it in the trash and says, I just want to make that old Nazi squirm. Have an answer to a Negro. So, you say respect the deal? Excuse me if I say our word is exactly as good as yours. And it's interesting what you say about interracial aspect. We do have an interracial relationship on the show of the Smutneys, and I want to get into those characters too. Brian made me chuckle a bit when he mentioned loan sharking because the scene where Loy and, and Dr. Senator go and pitch their idea of a credit card to the bank, I took that as a modern-day commentary that for Loy, he just saw that as a legal extension of loan sharking. If you look at credit cards and the whole concept of credit cards and these days, it's certainly in Australia here, they're still charging 12, 13% on credit cards when the interest rates here are like one or less. And so it's it's a legal version of loan sharking. So I, I, I had a chuckle at, at, at that. I wanted to, so there, one thing that jumped out at me and it was in episode one where I think Loy says to the elder Fada, I think at one point, yeah, I see the signs, no coloreds and no Italians. And that struck me as being odd, like 1950. It seemed like that was out of place for the time. And if we're going off of like what he says to the guys in jail, like they look at me and I can get all the money and all the pussy and I can still be president, that goes against that line, right? So it seems like he's talking about an issue of nationality that may have been true like 30, 40 years before that is less true now. Yeah. Do you get that sense like, okay, oh yeah, it seemed like that line was out of place and, and basically it was put there so that these two mm-hmm. competing groups could have like, you're not better than me, we're in the same boat, when in fact, they're not. Not in 1950, they're not. Yeah, I, and that's exactly what I was saying a minute ago that, yeah, there's there's definitely a little bit of a history here. I mean, they're attempting to make make it clear to us so we can understand that these two groups are coming from a similar place, not the same place, but coming from a similar place of dealing with discrimination historically. That first comment you mentioned was meant to establish that. But then, as you said, I was also thinking the exact same thing, that the the later comment made by Josto, it's contradictory. And I think it's contradictory because someone who had a hand in making this film recognized that there had been this change, right? I mean, again, I, I keep saying that Italians were becoming white in the, in the early 20th century. First generation Italians that were arriving in what we call second wave immigration of the late 19th, early 20th century were heavily discriminated against. But as they were learning English and as their children were going to American schools and as the children were becoming acclimated to many different types of American ways of life, they were very often considered white. And by the time we get to the 1950s, that is the case. There might have just been a little bit of disjunction in the way that they were telling the history. But but Ethel Rita, it seems like she goes to a segregated school. So this is the young girl whose POV we have in the beginning of of the season. As things have been changing over the past, from let's say the perspective of the show in the 1950s, the past few decades, things have been changing 
for Irish immigrants and for Italian immigrants, they had not been changing in the same way for African-Americans. And that sort of legal segregation, de jure segregation, doesn't really start to break down until the civil rights movement of the 1960s. So it's very historically accurate that we could possibly see that sort of overt segregation of African-Americans in the 1950s. Right. So we're just going to jump back into the characters because this is the casting. This is the big part of the budget is the casting of these following characters. And as we were saying that the Italian patriarch dies by being suffocated by nurse crazy cakes. And so we have this Giusto, he's the older son and he's here in America. And just let's talk about the casting here. Okay, so we have Jason Schwartzman cast as Giusto. So... Brian, tell us a little bit of his pedigree, of Jason Schwartzman's pedigree, for those who may not know. Well, okay, so this is all opinion. He's what I like to call a personality actor. So basically, film to film, you're getting Jason Schwartzman, which in certain films is great, like Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is great. The Jarling Limited is great. So he's a flavor, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. a flavor that translates into this role as... Fredo got cast as yeah. Justo. He's right. basically Fredo. And it's just like, yeah, so, okay. that's my commentary. So there yes. So Period. so Jason Schwartzman, I would agree with you, is a very quirky and interesting actor who kind of is his own archetype. He's got a very dry, witty, he's there's just a certain dryness to him. And he's he's in a lot of comedies. That's kind of been his bread and butter. But it, it was hard for me to get into him at first mm-hmm. because I see him as, as you say, his as himself. But he's from the Coppola family, right? His mom is Connie Corleone. So it's very interesting to put him into this role as basically a de facto Fredo. And oh, there was just something about him. I don't know whether I'm rooting for him. I don't know whether he's just a putz and, and I should be hoping for his downfall. I don't know if he's deliberately trying to be funny as he tries to fill his father's shoes, literally tries to sit in his father's chair that is too big for well, him. That's what I'm saying. Like when he, when he sits in a chair that like dwarfs him, that's making a visual commentary about the smallness of him. And he is typically towered over by everyone. Mm-hmm. And I say that as a relatively short person. So I can understand the Napoleon complex of him. Right. Uh, but it diffuses, in my opinion, the kind of drama. But, the drama it's such, of- but it's such specific casting that I wonder, did they write this role for him? Or whose idea was it to cast him? I'm trying to think of what other actor would do this role. and Throw a rock, you'd hit one. Well, oh my gosh. Well, uh, ironically, I, I don't know much about him. You guys are waxing lyrical about Jason Schwartzman, but I, I just hadn't seen anything that he'd been in before. So to me, he looked like yet another one of uh, the actors in the cavalcade of the, the history of Fargo casting these amazing cameos. <laughs> so so I, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't know of his background. I thought he's another... I think of the original movie Fargo and the Peter Stormare, the the blonde-haired uh, co-conspirator with Steve Buscemi's character. I, I thought it was another one of those, but he's yet definitely a left. It's got a very weird kind of vibe on in, in this series, but I like it. It's, it's a bit wacky, but I I find him very watchable. You just can't take your eyes off him. Right, he's not right, comfortable. Right. He's, he's just you guys no, just no. said sitting in his dad's chair and so on. He knows he's supposed to play this role. As the eldest son, he's supposed to take over, but he just looks like he wants to be somewhere else. I, I liked Brian's characterization of him as uh, 
kind of like Fredo. He does seem kind of like a nervous, skittish, uncomfortable character that is kind of written to fail or written to be doomed at some point. And I mean, I actually, the actor is okay. I don't really know him from very many movies, but I don't really like the character. It's kind of like he doesn't make any of the scenes he's in better. And uh, it just seems like we're all just waiting for something tragic to happen with this character. So Mm -hmm. something else can happen. And I feel like his brother, the one who is just in from Italy, what's his name? Gaetano. So yeah. Yeah. He seems as if he's kind of percolating in the background and like he is at some point going to enter and he's already up to up to episode five. He's already been pretty active. But it just seems like the spot that Jason Schwartzman is standing in just seems like a, an outline that's waiting to be filled by something or someone else. And it's I am, I'm imagining it might be his brother. So, yeah, so I want to talk about the world that exists at the beginning of the series. And then there are these characters like the brother who come shooting in from outer space and collide with the world. But in the, in the beginning, yeah, we just have Justo who's taken over for his father. And we have all of the kind of the thugs around him, like Calamita, who's his muscle, his, his kind of his right hand muscle. And it's this Italian actor who is like just thin as a stiletto and just as mm-hmm. deadly as a stiletto. And he has this sort of iconic fuchsia coat that he wears. And I, I just, I just love the visual of that actor. But I want to turn to Debrell Smutney. Now, that character is Mrs. Undertaker. So she's Ethel Rita's mom. She's married to a white undertaker and she's a, a black lady. And she is just so proud. And she's just got this spine of steel. And as we come to find out, she's the good sister. Like she's the for lack of a better word, the white sheep of her family. She's trying to do everything right. She's trying to run a legitimate business and raise her daughter right. She's got a brilliant daughter and take care of this this funeral parlor. I love the actress who plays her, Angie White. She's as strong as Andrew Bird, who, who plays her husband, is as weak. And again, there's a character that comes into their orbit that crashes into that little family that really shows how strong Mrs. Smutney is. And I want to talk about Detective Otis, played by the remarkable Jack Houston. So he's the detective in this town who is sort of caught between the two crime families. He's on the take with both of them. He's got all of these tics and undiagnosed OCD tendencies. Brian, what did you think of Jack Houston's performance? You know, I, I actually, I really like his performance. I mean, it's like it, he's given something to do. That's the defining feature for me. He's so clearly and specifically drawn. And that was the thing, just to, with Angie White, in my opinion, she's so underutilized. I don't have a real sense of her. I mean, it's not her performance. It is the writing, I think, that lets her down. Whereas with Jack Houston's character, I mean, it's just the ticks and the tension and the tweaking and the fidgety. I mean, he's got something to do in mm-hmm. the context of playing this character. And so in that way, you're able to understand who this guy is just based on his actions mm-hmm. but i mean that's a lot of ticks i mean that, oh yeah so so the thing about casting something like this is these characters are written so over the top and to find actors who can carry them without them becoming caricatures is really really tricky and so i i love jack houston's performance in this because it could be just so pathetically comic a million times knocking on the door a million times trying the doorknob a million times flicking on and off the lights yeah i, I really do i 
I think you're right. And I think that he infuses the character with, with this pathos and it's not, mm-hmm. it's not over the top. I mean, it's just like the guy recognizes like how he is a victim of his own mind. And yet he's, he has no control over it. It's like he, he has clearly, he has the compulsion to, to knock and to do the doorknob and to, do his fly when before he goes to the bathroom. You can see the frustration, but he has no other way to be but that. Mm-hmm. And so there's a truth in that portrayal that resonated with me, even though it's such an over-the-top kind <laughs> of circumstance to find yourself in. I mean, he plays it as honestly as can be expected, and it comes across, I think, in the performance. It's very, it's strong. It's one of the few things I've actually really liked him in. Mm-hmm. I think, like Brian, I really enjoyed his performance. As Brian just said, he's tortured by these ticks, and I wonder whether he had them his whole life, or whether the death of his wife is what set him on this. He's constantly checking things. You know, it's it's checking over and over and over and over. And I wonder if that's a result of the trauma that he went through or not. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe we won't. It's a very sympathetic character. It's like when somebody stutters and you want them to spit the word out. I want him to get through the door. Mm-hmm. I want him to move on to the next thing and stop doing it. It's it's. I love it. It's a great character. Wasn't he also on Board, Boardwalk Empire? He was. That's um, and right. He, and on that show, he also played another character who had issues with ticks, and I think it, he also had half of his face was blown off from from uh, fighting in World War One. And so, yeah, this show seems to have a collection of weird characters, <laughs> and it, it seems to happen a lot in early twentieth century or mid twentieth century crime TV shows like Boardwalk Network. Empire. And it's interesting. There's a way in which I think the show kind of exhibits this kind of slightly phantasmagorical version of the past. And one of the ways in which this is exhibited is with the, I guess we'll get to some of the other characters, but the Orietta character, Mm -hmm, Miss Mayflower. Yes, crazy nurse. Mm -hmm. And some of the ways that she kind of depicts this, you know, fantastical version of a woman in the in the 1950s. But then also there's something that I, I thought was really interesting about the character names that they chose. Mm-hmm. Ethel Rita, Otis, uh, Loy, Omi, Zelmer, right? These names that are, were never common, but they were, they definitely represent this kind of, again, this phantasmagoria of the 1950s, this unreal version of that time period. And I think that Houston's character in a lot of ways represents that. It's funny you mentioned names. I was uh, reading uh, an article where Noah Hawley was mentioning that he used a bunch of photographs. I, I think it's some famous American photographer, but from the 1910s and 1920s. And I mean, look at the names, as you said, in, in this series, but also in Lester Nygaard. Who comes up with that as a scriptwriter, right? And he, anyway, he researched these old photographs and he had realized that there were early variations in names, like it's not Otis. It's Odis mm-hmm. right, with a D, right. and he and he sifted through all these old, old photos looking for inspiration of odd different names to uh, allocate to these characters, and yeah, that's been a, a thing throughout. I mean, how can you have a cop called Gloria Burgle and not have a sense of humor? <laughs> <laughs> well, Doug, you mentioned this character of Zelmar, and this is one of these characters that comes just crashing into the story and just sets off all kinds of chaos. So Zelmar is the sister of Mrs. Undertaker. So Zelmar is the bad sister where Debrell is the good sister. And Karen Aldridge is the actress's name. 
And this is by far my favorite performance in the entire series. Mm-hmm. Her body, just the way her body moves. And <laughs> it's like the way she just sucks the juice out of every scene she's in. And I just love that. So she is breaking out of prison with her girlfriend or, or best friend from prison. They break out of prison and their first stop is to change clothes. So they rob this lady in the women's restroom and Zelmar takes the lady's fur coat and she does not stop wearing that fur coat for the rest of the season. And she just loves it. And just the way that she just, I, I can't describe it. She takes each scene and just grips it by the throat. Just the way that she expresses herself, her body, her voice. I just thought that was just an amazing performance. It's a super brave just huge choices that she makes. Yeah, she is one of those Chicago actors ah. who is featured in the show. She's a Jeff Award winning actress. She is, I think, through and through Chicago. And as somebody who lived in Chicago, loves Chicago, loves Chicago theater, loves Chicago actors, more Chicago actors need to have a, a platform that shows off the talent in that town. And she's doing it. I mean, this it's scene chewing work i mean it's a scene yeah no 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 not in a a negative way at all i mean again she has something to do she has a very specific kind of action that she's given i mean like the writer honors that character and debrell is kind of background unfortunately as as good an actress Mm -hmm. as she is i mean it's like there's there's just it's kind of like a scatter shooting in this cast in terms of like how the writers treat the various characters and what they're given to play with right but yeah, I, I love her. I think she's great. I hope she gets more stuff. I think she's a very important part of a show like this. Her character really kind of brings out some important aspects of the, the history that the show is attempting to portray. You know, there's one point in the show where she says, we reject the game. Where she's mm-hmm. explaining why they're not, why she doesn't think of herself as a criminal to her niece. Uh, she says, we reject the game. Society Ain't nothing organized about our crime because our crime is freedom. We live while we are alive and die with our guns in our hands. And I think this was really important because there's there's a tradition in African-American folklore of folkloric heroes, characters that live and die by that exact same philosophy. Blues music and Black folklore itself is filled with stories of especially men, but also women characters like Stagalee, Devil Winston, Railroad Bill, and and many, many other people that are popularly known and that that aren't, who seem to have no real purpose in their actions or in the violence that they they enact or or the crimes that they commit and the havoc that they create. They have no other purpose than to break down social boundaries, break down the social chains that are meant to hold them in place Mm. um, and to create freedom out of bondage to remain free as long as possible. And very often they do it in ways that the, the stories kind of uh, tell how they, they conjure or they transmogrify themselves or they have extremely heightened skills with a gun or in some way they're able to just kind of slip past the law or slip past enemies or vanquish bigger enemies than themselves. And they become these sort of anti-heroes that are singularly concerned with their own personal gain, and and sometimes even at the expense of their own people or at the expense of their own families in some cases. Mm 
something to say to me? Don't you take this out on mama. You ain't going down there. Boy, Cannon, you know better than to come between a mother and her child. I'm handling it. Oh, you handling it. Well, send a letter to the Pope. You hear that, mama? Daddy's handling it. Mm-hmm. I got two baby girls upstairs sleeping. You're gonna handle them, too? Maybe into the hospital or the cemetery? Pretty soon, all we're gonna have around here is a house full of clothes. I said I'm... You like that coat you wear? The food you eating? How about you, your majesty? You like the view from your room? Your fancy blankets? Where do you think all that comes from? The razor's edge. What? We supposed to get rich and stay rich, how? By saying our prayers? The boy went to the club and the bulls lit him up. You act like that can't happen just walking down the street acting like I'm the villain, when all I do is fight for this family. You don't like how it's going? You scared to take the risk? Too bad. We on the ride now, and we can't get off till a roller coaster stops. So I thought the chaotic and fun-loving character, Zellmer, and, and definitely also Swanee, uh, Swanee's character, her, her partner, they both kind of embodied a kind of counterpoint to Chris Rock's overly groomed businessman, criminal syndicate head, who is actually looking, as, they, as, as Zellmer says, he's looking to become legitimate. He's actually bought into the game, and he's using criminality to insert himself into the legitimate economic mainframe, i.e. trying to start a, a credit card, where her goal is just to have fun and live her life outside of those boundaries for as long as possible. Right. And she's very willing to Thelma and Louise it off the cliff. I mean, she knows that there's no way out for them. And but she's completely almost hedonistic in the moment. Although, though, I'm not sure if you saw this episode, but she does try to make right by the chaos that she's brought her sister and Mm. she gives them some stolen money so that they can pay back their debt to Loy. But it just completely backfires because she's gotten this money from stealing from Loy, which is quite a scene. That heist scene is uh, just one for the ages. This reminds me of something we haven't talked about yet. Now, I was very confused but intrigued by a supernatural element that enters this story. And I don't even know what episode it is, which, uh, Brian? It's around four or five, I think. Yeah, no. And and this is a a Noah Hawley calling card. Like Mm -hmm. in nearly every season of Fargo, there is some kind of either supernatural or even, even extraterrestrial kind of element Mm-hmm. that kind of exists on the fringes and then makes this big appearance. Yeah. And, and there's a part of you that's like, oh, certainly he's not going to go this direction. Oh, hey, wait, he did go this direction. So as a ghost appears or a specter or a fawn or whatever you want to call it starts to appear in the funeral home. And I thought, oh, is this like a ghost from one of the dead people or is it a ghost from a former? I know you don't know who it is, but they start this man, this rotting corpse starts to appear. And then it starts to seem very clearly connected to either Zellmeyer 
or that family or something, it starts to follow her and is like a harbinger of death or, or something. It was actually interesting to me to see that because they go through some such pains at the beginning of each episode to say that this is all factual, that this story happened exactly in this way. And so I'm, I'm wondering if that's a departure from that or if it's going to become clear that this was an integral part of the, of the storyline. Well, we um, know that that's a big inside joke that none of this is factual. And oh, even okay. in the in the original movie Fargo, they, they have that in the very beginning yeah. that this, these, this is the story of I the see. dead, blah, blah, blah. And it's completely... Not factual, but yeah. they they harken back to gives it a gravitas. You well, know? I mean, yeah. so so like with Sandman, like the two instances that, that I recall, it's when Swanee is on the verge of, and that's when Sandman kind of appears out of hmm. the tub in the last episode with Mayflower. She's on the verge of doing something that could potentially bring about death. And that's when he also shows up. It, it seems like he's an arbiter of we first see him ending possible death. Yeah, we first see him when Ethel Rita hears some weird noise outside of her door. And then you see and you think it's just a man sitting there. And then later, yeah, it becomes clear. Uh, and because I have watched more episodes than you guys have, there is a there is a reason given. I don't think it's as good a reason as as I had in my mind. Mm-hmm. I don't think it completely closes the loop, but I just thought it was interesting. And, and Brian, you explained it's part of the style, but I thought it was so weird to insert that supernatural element into something that's taking such care to be, I don't know. In this historically accurate. Yeah, right, right, right. Anyway, so the other, other character I wanted to discuss before we let you go, Doug, is this brother who comes <laughs> from... The, home, the motherland, uh, Gaetano, who is just a, you know, mucho gusto. He's, he's a big, crazy Italian. He's, he's large in size, but he's large in acting choices. His eyes literally, <laughs> he bulges them out at all times. So he cannot look crazier. And he's a bull in a china shop and is, is come from Italy after his father's death. And he definitely, does not like how Justo is running the family. He he completely disagrees and he wants to get in there and take over power and do things his own way and switch allegiances within the family to himself and, and that power struggle. It, it's a bug-eyed wonder, isn't it? And it put me in mind immediately of the way this sort of warring brothers is a theme for Noah Hawley, what were the the brothers called in the Stussy brothers were kind of at each other and you know, now these guys and he it's almost like he's Sonny Corleone yes and as you said yeah and just though is is Fredo and I, I sort of was thinking oh that's that's interesting I don't know then who that makes yeah. where where the other brother is but yeah it, but just a incredible performance and he's always he's just looks ready to explode at all times like as you said physically he's big and he's he's close at He's got that knife that he just wears out like a like a gun in a holster. It looks like he's ready to pull it at any moment. And explosive, yeah, he could just go off at any time. Great character. Again, another one that when he's on screen, you just can't take your eyes off him and you're wondering what he's going to do next. Oh, my gosh, there's a sense of danger at yeah. all times when he's yeah. on screen. Well, it reminds me very much. I mean, first of all, I, I question a little bit whether or not there's a, a little bit of a stereotype, Italian stereotype there that has developed over the years in movies like this, or this is a, a TV show, but movies that, that have uh, been on the same subject. It just immediately what comes to mind for me is 
the character that Joe Pesci played in pretty much every movie he's ever yes. been in that was about that was about a mob, mafia story, Goodfellas, Casino. And mm-hmm. he has the same sense of, or at least he's he may be uh, attempting to project the same sense of constant danger and chaos that Joe Pesci so iconically produced on the, on those movies. Mm-hmm. This kind of person who is power hungry, who is willing to commit in any act of violence at any moment, anywhere, and who is really just ultimately a threat to the entire structure of whatever organization he's a part of, right. because he has his own idea about how things should go and what really projecting power into the public world means. And he won't really accept anyone else's negotiations or anyone else's idea of what what really needs to happen in order to maintain power or maintain stability. He's like the Tasmanian devil to some extent. And that's how I always saw Joe Pesci's character. And I just, I think that a lot of shows or TV shows or movies that are portraying the Italian mafia in the 19th century, 20th century, feel the need now to have a character like him that will kind of scare, scare you while you're watching, while you're watching the show. Well, yeah, you just reminded me, I hadn't even thought of this, but like Joe Pesci and Goodfellas, there's an arbitrariness to his killing where Joe Pesci kills the, the Michael Imperioli is the little bus boy. And so does Gaetano. He, he kills this, this bus boy and this little cafe owner just for of the slightest of disrespect. And it does make you think that if he can do that, he can, he could do anything. He's quite a loose cannon. I thought that was funny, Lisa. He he was em- he embarrassed himself by slipping on the ice out the front, and when he was hearing that, I think it's Pacini in his head, and you expected him to get up and kill him right there, but he didn't. But what what got the kid killed was he served up an inferior cup of coffee. It was like, that that was it, right? Okay, now yes. now all beds are off. You're it. You're gone. You can't even do your one job right. You can't even make a cup yeah. of coffee. Forget it. That's it. You've gone. Well, and and staying with, I mean, for me, staying within the Coen Brothers universe and how Holly kind of pays homage to the movies, and we've talked about Miller's Crossing being a movie that Noah Holly is using for this particular season. I cannot escape the fact that he looks nearly identical to John Polito, down to the raspy voice. What you give me the hi hat? Oh yeah, absolutely. He plays, I thought he exactly plays the, the he same plays thing the right. war. He he was in uh, Homicide, Life on the Street, the TV show. He plays a cop in in that series, but he was also in Big Lebowski, playing a private eye who was following Jeff Bridges' character. But like, if you put them together, the guy playing Gitano looks like a younger version, and down to the raspy voice, and it seems mm-hmm. like it's this kind of homage to to that figure because he was a hot in Miller's Crossing. He was a hothead, like he reacted and that's the thing that finally did him in in the movie and by the um, way brian what what was that movie about a gangster movie about italians versus irish yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> hey just you mentioned miller's crossing and you don't need very little prompting to mention that movie is one of my favorites but just to circle back for a moment on to where uh, the last character we were discussing brian i am sure lisa i don't think you've seen the movie but brian the breakout scene when the girls broke out of prison so yeah. so yeah, when Swanee, I mean that is a, almost an exact remake of of Raising Arizona, right? When John Goodman and his oh, cohort really? break out. Oh, it's Lisa. When you see it, you'll laugh. It's just so funny. And indeed, when the girls get to the funeral home and a Mrs. Undertaker, as you say, says realizes that they weren't let out of prison, and Swanee just looks up and says, "Oh no, ma'am, we we released ourselves on our own recognizance." 
Now, Brian knows that is the exact line <laughs> that, that Goodman utters in Raising Arizona. And uh, they're just this hilarious Bonnie and Bonnie characters. And even I wondered, I don't know if you picked it up, Brian, have you seen Bound by the Wachowskis? Yeah, a long, long time ago. Long yeah, time ago. me too. It was a long time ago. But but I had to chuckle when, what's the other character's name? The other lady? Amar. Yeah. She, she's washing money. In, yes. in the bath, yeah. getting the vomit off it. And yeah. there's that classic scene in Bound, which is about two lesbian characters getting involved in crime. And there's a scene where they're, where they're washing money and pinning it up on the uh, over the bath. And I just wondered if that was a reference or whether it was just mm. coincidence. I don't know, but it was interesting. Well, and in episode two, they introduced the word rumpus. What's the rumpus? Yeah, which is a yeah big, she says, what's the, yeah. Which is a big, big, big word Miller's in Crossing. Miller's Crossing. Yeah. Mm. The only other character we haven't talked about who also crashes into this world is played by Timothy Oliphant, who comes in playing this U.S. Marshal, Dick Duffy, who is quite a character who's a Mormon on a mission. This is, only, this is the only question I have. Why did they choose to like costume him like he's in 1920s cavalry, like with the high lace up boots, the kind of <laughs> cavalry pants? I mean, it's just well, like. Why not? So what? Uh, it's 1950. That's what I'm saying. He's from Salt Lake City, or I don't know where he's coming from. But anyway, I just thought his he was remarkable in this. I liked him much better in this than his little guest star turn in Mandalorian that I saw a couple of days ago. But um, I love Timothy Oliphant, and he just chews the heck out of the scenery, and I bought every moment of it. Anything else we want to touch on before we wrap up? Just on this little character discussion, and I'm so glad that Doug could join us for this. Yeah. I wanted to thank you. Thank you so much. I wanted to say that it seems to me that a lot of movies about African Americans and criminality and shows like this one have a certain type of, they kind of exhibit a certain type of invisibility of African Americans and their communities to some extent. And so I think a lot of the Black characters in this show, they're working against a sense of invisibility, particularly Chris Rock's character and the men who work for him. While on one hand, they're very visible to people who wish to control them and possibly exploit them, like police and politicians or commercial entrepreneurs who are uh, looking to kind of sell them things or meet mm-hmm. housing needs for people who are segregated out of other housing. They're, they're, they're economically invisible. And Lloyd Cannon is trying to change that, at least for himself and his own family, but also for his community by trying to get the credit card business started and, and provide them with some sort of capital. They're also socially invisible and finding that over racism, segregation, and a still intact Jim Crow system, right? This is the 1950s, is attempting to keep them out of view. Right, right mm-hmm. at the beginning, we see when El- Ethel Rita returns home, which doubles as a funeral home. She's kind of, she's forced to kind of move through her own home in a certain way to avoid being seen by uh, the people who are actually there for a funeral. That's and, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, so there are a lot of characters uh, in this show that are in the process of rejecting one type of visibility, visibility to police, visibility to those who are looking to control them and fighting for another type of uh, visibility. Oh, so well said. This is why I have smart people like you coming on my show, because <laughs> I could never have articulated that. And oh, it's so wonderful to see you again, Doug. Oh, thank you. And yeah, no, I hope really it sounds like you've been busy talking about your book and going here and there. And uh, can you tell us again what the name of the book is? 
Yes, of course. The book is Uncontrollable Blackness, African-American Men and Criminality in Jim Crow, New York. So yeah, I've had a, a number of opportunities to do some book talks, uh, a number of printed or video or even audio interviews. So yeah, it's been great getting to shop my book around. You know, it's in the yeah. middle of a pandemic, but luckily there's Zoom and I still get to do it in a way that's productive. And you should fun. have a podcast about your book. We should like break yeah, down the book. and Something I've thought about, definitely. It would, be really, it would be a really interesting and productive way to use this quarantine that we're all still living through and to actually... So question for you, and you can be completely honest. Mm-hmm. You've all, you only got to episode, whatever, five, six, five, six. Episode five. five. Do you think you'll finish the season? (laughs) I will. I'm interested enough in the characters that I want to finish the season. I want to see how this possibly expands and grows and changes. If they follow up in other seasons, I want to be able to do that without having to go back and rewatch. I I mean, I like a lot of the characters. I would love to see a bit more about what's going on in the community. I would love to see a little bit, to to have the camera kind of go down to ground level a little bit more. Mm. But I'm very interested in the dynamics between these two families. I'm really happy to see Chris Rock. I mean, I I think his character is actually a little bit underutilized on the show. (laughs) I would love to see his life beyond some of these these meetings that he seems to be going to. Right, right. They're all meetings aren't happening. He seems to disappear. So I'd love to see a bit more of that. I like Chris Rock and it's great to see him in a a, a drama role. I'm interested in the show enough to continue to watch it. Um, okay, good. You'll have to let me know what you think because I'm at the penult- penultimate episode. I watched it today. and Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I really, I dug it. I really, really dug it, obviously. Well, anyway, thank you, Dr. Flo, for joining us today. And uh, we'll be back with my beast talking about the rest of um, Fargo. We'll wrap it up. But for now, this is Killer Casting signing out. Killer Casting was created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Sound editing by Dean Laffin from Real World Productions. Logo art by April Laffin. Theme music provided by Amphibious Zoo Music. And Big Fat Opinions provided by Brian Allen Hill.